Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the municipal election is fast approaching, so we cover the big stories of the week with John Best, the publisher of the Bay Observer. Canada's chief of defense staff warns MPs that China and Russia consider themselves at war with the West, and he doesn't think we're ready. Dr. Robert Hewish, associate professor with the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University, will join us to discuss that. And according to Nano's projections, if an election were held today, the Conservative Party would win more seats than the Liberals. Interesting twist of events here. What does it mean going forward? It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We're just a few weeks away from the uh, municipal elections right across the province. And uh, the council vote here in Hamilton is shaping up to be quite interesting, uh, simply because of the numbers. I mean, there are seven vacancies out of 16 positions, people that were not running for re-election. Uh, so it's going to be a different looking council. And uh, as to what that entails and what's that going to mean going forward, uh, we'll talk about that with our next guest. John Best is the publisher of the Bay Observer, which uh, follows, of course, politics in the Hamilton, Burlington area right around the Bay. Uh, John, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Bill. The uh, the people that are running for office right now, a lot of the newcomers, the, the new candidates, uh, the, the catchphrase they're all using here is this is a change election. Uh, just because of seven of the 16 people that are going to be there are going to be new faces. By definition, that's that's a change, isn't it? It's probably the most change uh, that I've that I can remember, Bill. And, and I've been, uh, you know, between my television days and currently uh, I, I mean, we're talking decades. Uh, th- this is without question uh, probably the biggest change election that we're ever going to see. Not just because of the the, the seven vacancies, but there's some really uh, string, really tough races going on involving uh, some of the incumbents. I was just taking a look here, and you know, you're uh, here in uh, the Center Mountain where I'm located. You got Scott Duvall and Esther Paul's uh, major sign war going on here in the Center Mountain. Um, I understand that in Dundas, there's a you know. A, Arlene Vanderbeek, the incumbent, is being challenged there by Mr. Wilson. Um, Ward 9 in Stony Creek Mountain, um, quite a race there uh, involving uh, Brad Clark, the incumbent. And and those are just a few. I mean, Ward 2, you've had that race has been going on for eight years now between uh, Jason Farr and Cameron Kreutsch. So it's uh, it, this is a real, uh, this is a probably the most ideological uh, election that I can remember as well. It's, uh, well it's and that's an interesting point. And, and you and I talked about this, I think, a few weeks ago. Uh, and I know my colleague Scott Radley wrote about this in the spec a couple of days ago, essentially saying that there's, there's no big issue in this campaign. Uh, and I, I get where he's coming from. And, you know, it was the LRT issue still last election. And before that, it was where's the stadium going to be? And and past elections that you've covered, John, of course, it's been the expressway. Should we build it? Where's, you know, all this. So, and those have been, you know, polarizing issues, but they motivated people to get out and vote. And I, I know that people are going to give a long list of things like affordable housing and, and a number of different issues and cost of living, uh, some of which are within the purview of municipal government. Many of them still need assistance from the others, uh, other levels of government to make this happen. But uh, do you get the sense that people are getting revved up? Because if they're going to vote, this is just around the time, a few weeks before the election, that they start paying attention. I, th- I think they're, it's starting now, Bill. I, I, I know there was uh, some pushback against uh, what Scott Radley suggested, but 
uh, unless you're right in one of these campaigns, uh, I, I think the the you know it's it's starting to click in probably now. But it, it you're right. Uh, there's uh, if you're talking about hard issues, the kind of bread and butter issues that that normally are uh, dominate a campaign. This one is more about you know there there's a group of people coming from a whole bunch of different directions that think it's time for. Uh, you, you, moral and intellectual superiority i guess would be the way i would describe it there's a group of people that that just think that uh incumbency is the problem and uh you know so we're not talking about as you say we're not talking about infrastructure expressways we're, we're just talking about um incumbency itself being uh somehow a drawback and uh, we'll see how that works out. I mean, there certainly are some interesting races. And the fact that seven people chose not to run again, I think, is also a function of that. You look at the seven people that, that opted not to run, I think almost all of them probably had a pretty good chance of re-election. So they're, they're moving on, I think, because of the just the, you know, social media has really poisoned the political well. And uh, at some point, I think people just say, why am I doing this? And, uh, and I think you saw a fair amount of that heading into this election. Well, let's talk about a couple of the other issues that seem to be driving that movement that you just <clears throat> described. Uh, and and there's, the other buzzwords, of course, we always hear about are transparency and accountability. Uh, and anybody who's running for public office at any level always throws those words out there and says, I'm going to maintain that. That's going to happen. And this is all around what some people consider to be two of the biggest controversies, of course, the, the Red Hill uh, paving uh, controversy, and that inquiry is ongoing. And, and of course, uh, sewage gates, uh, where they were dumping you know right. billions of, of liters of sewage into there. And, and they essentially chastised council, and I think justifiably so. You and I have talked about this considerably. Uh, for keeping this a secret to the public for over a year. Uh, and they, they've pointed to this councillor and that councillor, many of whom are not running again. But they're sort of selective in their anger because even their favourite councillors, and it's pretty obvious there's a few people there that uh, have curried favour with a lot of this group, uh, they seem to get a free pass. They, they voted to keep it quiet for a year too, but that's okay for the, as far as they're concerned. So it's it's one of these things where there's there's uh, a lot of stuff being directed here at incumbents, uh, but it depends on who the incumbent is and whether or not uh, you know this group or that group likes them a lot. That's right, and and that's why I I call it the most uh, ideological uh, election because that's really what it comes down to. Um, if you want to know what, what is the um, you know what is the ballot question, and uh, and oddly enough, the only person that has framed the ballot question so far is Bob Rutina. Uh, he's he's taken a lot of incoming on these tweets that he's putting out where he talks about special interest groups. And, you know, it, it's pretty blunt language for a Canadian municipal election. But the, the truth is, he's the only person that's really calling this election for what it is. It's it's really a, an ideological war. And, and it's been brewing ever since the last election, at least. And uh, Bertina's called it out, uh, uh, you know, and he's taken some some heat for it. But there you have it. it, it, it this election is not about uh, bread and butter issues. It's about ideology. Uh, what what you know? Are you woke uh, or whatever the expression is of the day, uh, or are you not? So uh, there's there's racial overtones here that are that are very disturbing. It's uh, this is a nasty election, Bill. 
Well, yeah, and it, it's boiled over once in a while, but not so much as, as I would have thought. You know, the, the, the insinuations here seem to be, you know, somewhat uh, jaded a little bit about exactly what they're saying about which. Uh, you know, because let's face it, over the last four years, John, I mean, there's been a, a, an anti-police sentiment, defund the police, uh, you know, take the budgets away, I mean, from some people on council. And a number of the people that are running as, as candidates in this election uh, seem to be supportive of that. Uh, it might well take this city and this council in a very, very different direction than they've been going in for the last little while. And I know some people are going to say, well, what's wrong with that? I don't know, because uh, the, the question I got yesterday, I was talking, I was at a group yesterday, and we just kind of got getting into the election. And, uh, and one guy asked me, he says, is this change for the sake of change, or is there, is there a direction here these people want to go in? I said, well, you have to ask them. I mean, they're the ones that are running for office right now. Uh, but I'm not so sure. And And you know, I, I I put a little water into the wine here of all the promises that are being made right now because I reminded this individual, as I have others, uh, whoever wins this mayor's race, you, you get one vote on council. We don't have a strong mayor system here. It may may or may not happen, but right now you get one vote. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to spend this. Yeah, if you get nine other votes, you might. But, uh, you know, good luck with that sometimes. Yeah, and, and I think the last mayor that, uh, well, I mean, certainly to, to a degree, Fred Eisenberger was able to do that. I think prior to that, you'd, you'd be looking at Larry Deany. He always managed a, a very narrow sort of coalition of nine votes, and, and you need that. The other problem that, that I think all uh, people will face, uh, whether they're incumbent or whether they're new, is that there's a lot of things that are simply either not in control of a city council at all or only very marginally in, in control of, of city councils. So, you know, you look at, uh, for instance, there's all this talk about let's cut the red tape and uh, we get all these houses built. Uh, and, and that is being, you know, not only expressed by Keenan Loomis, but even, even Doug Ford is... Uh, putting structures in place that, that basically are going to override planning in, in uh, municipalities. You know, so you're, that, that appears to be the solution. But the problem is that we don't have enough planners in Ontario. There's, you know, we got a shortage of nurses. we got a shortage in all these different professions. And uh, also in the planning uh, profession, communities are cannibalizing each other to get planners. They're, they're offering all kinds of incentives to get them to come on board. Now, maybe the provincial attitude is that we will just get rid of local planning and we'll start putting houses in people's driveways and tool sheds and uh, we'll, we'll put 40-story apartment buildings in the Duran neighborhood. Uh, maybe that's going to happen, but, um, you know, there's a lot that, that a municipal council simply can't do and if you're going in there with with really ideology on your mind, uh, when the public expects you to pick up the garbage, uh, give us some police protection, make sure we got uh, you know the fire services and EMS are all working, um, try to keep these roads from uh, you know uh, paving over our potholes and so on. Uh, that's pretty mundane stuff for somebody who's who who views this as an intellectual exercise. You touched on something that uh, nobody seems to want to talk about during this election. Uh, they want to talk about building bridges with the provincial government and, and the federal government. And, and again, that's uh, something that you hear just about every election. Uh, and, and that seems to be working. I mean, you know, the premier and the transportation minister 
uh, who's going to join us in just a couple of minutes. Uh, we're in town yesterday for a big funding announcement, and it seems to be working. But there's a, 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 I don't want to necessarily call it an obstacle, but there's an issue they're going to have to deal with as a new council. And that, as you mentioned, are the revisions that the province has made about the relationship between municipalities and planning. Uh, including, by the way, the urban boundary. Um, you know, I know that this past council voted that there was going to be no urban boundary expansion, period, end of sentence. Uh, the municipal affairs minister disagrees. The premier disagrees. And uh, guess what? You know, their this ideas... This is going to win that votes, argument. Yeah, there won't be an argument. That's all there is to it. You know, the right. minister is going to go in one day and simply say, yeah, it, we're putting this here. We're going to put this here. Uh, a lot of this power that they think they have right now to do some of these developments uh, is probably going to be taken out of their hands. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt about it, Bill. It's been it's been signaled uh, for the last year and a half, at least. Uh, we've you know, we've already seen uh, the upheaval, the, the, the change in structure to the Ontario Land Tribunal. It's not just a change of name. Uh, it, I mean, the, you know, when it was the Ontario Municipal Board, it was criticized for being developer friendly. But uh, what, what's going on now is getting right into local planning at a level we've never seen before. Uh, so, you know, uh, we always say that municipalities are a creature of the province. And uh, I would say never more so than what we're facing we, we've got a government that was just re-elected by a, by a, a nice majority. Um, he doesn't have to face the people for another four years. Uh, I think there's, there's going to be agenda after agenda driven. And uh, unfortunately, uh, it's not a great time, frankly, to be on a municipal council. If, if your agenda is uh, some kind of managed growth, uh, I would, uh, that's going to be a tough uh, promise to keep. Well, I mean, I was down that road when I was just a young buck and got elected to council back in the <laughs> late 1990s. Uh, and that was the change election. Uh, myself, Andrew Horvath, uh, Duke O'Sullivan, and uh, Ron Corsini and, uh, were all new councillors. And out of a 16-member, four new ones was relatively new. Now it's going to be seven. But we got, you know, a, a nightmarish first uh, term on council because as soon as we sat down and started thinking, okay, what we're going to do, uh, Mike Harris came in and said, I'm downloading all this stuff onto you. Good luck, guys. See you later. Uh, and by the way, we're amalgamating. Uh, good deal with that, and we'll see you later. So you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, you can talk, you know, all the platitudes you want about this is what I'm going to do, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, we exist at the behest, as you mentioned, of the provincial government, and they've got a game plan, and it includes Hamilton. And uh, it may or may not, you know, be the, uh, conducive with what the, some of these people on council want to do. And th th there's got to be a discussion about that, too. The province, uh, you know, it pretty much calls the shots here now. And we're not sure just what that's going to look like. No, and, and the other thing is with a council with a lot of new faces on it, it also opens the door for, you know, that there's always that tension between uh, who's running the show, staff or council. Most of the time it's staff, by the way. But, um, you know, with, with a bunch of new faces, a bunch of inexperienced people, you can expect that teeter-totter to go more in, in the staff direction. So... Let's hope we've got some good people in some good spots there. Well, exactly. And like you say, we've got a couple of weeks to go, but uh, it's important we talk about this because I believe the advanced polls are open this weekend. Uh, and Today. Uh, people have, yeah, and they've taken advantage of that. I'll be voting this weekend for sure. Um, and a lot of other people will too. And uh, I, I think you're going to see some dramatic change, but uh, some pretty high expectations of these, uh, these new people that are going to be elected in the next little while, including, as you mentioned, in the mayor's spot. 
Uh, John, sure. uh, thank you. Thanks always for this. Uh, have a great Thanksgiving weekend, and we'll talk again soon as this uh, uh, slowly but surely unfolds towards Election Day on the 24th. Always a pleasure, Bill. Take care. John Best, of course, uh, publisher of the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We uh, mentioned, uh, I guess, a week or two ago on the program about some concerns about staffing levels uh, within the Canadian military. Uh, There just aren't enough people these days. Well, yesterday, uh, what happened is Chief of Defence Staff Wayne Eyre told uh, members of Parliament at a committee hearing that Russia and China consider themselves to be at war with the West, and Canada has to meet the needs for that challenge. Now, he went on to say that uh, there's going to be an immediate halt to all non-essential activities in favour of boosting military recruitment and retention he told that parliamentary committee that the Canadian Armed Forces right now, quite frankly, is facing an unprecedented personnel crisis. I am very, very worried uh, about our uh, our numbers, and we need. That's why we're putting as a priority effort, the priority effort, the reconstitution of uh, of our military. Um, and so, what we're doing about it specifically? Well, we are looking at our recruiting system. We've we've uh, staffed. Our recruiting system to 100%. Uh, we are streamlining the recruiting uh, system. We've brought in a retention strategy. Uh, I don't know if that's going to be enough, but I mean, I, I think we have to put this in perspective. Uh, as a, a General Air made the comment to the committee, it's not just that there's a personnel crisis here. It's just the fact that things are heating up globally, and uh, Canada is going to have to play a role. And uh, do we have enough people to do it? I guess, and, and enough properly trained people. Uh, to talk about this, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Robert Hewish. Uh, Dr. Hewish is an associate professor with the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. Uh, professor, always a, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for this. It's great to be here, Bill. Thanks for bringing me back. Well, when we've had discussions in the past about people leaving the armed forces and, and recruitment being down, that, that in and itself is a problem. But when when General Air puts it into this perspective right now that we are almost, as he mentioned, in a de facto war with China and Russia, not just us, but I mean other NATO countries, et cetera, too, uh, there has to be an, a military presence here. And uh, I, I got the sense uh, from what he was saying yesterday that uh, that we're not ready to step up. Right. And when when I was reading that uh, that story myself, the, the first thing that kind of popped in my mind was the famous quote by uh, Robert McNamara, who was the Secretary of State under John F. Kennedy. And, and he, you know, during the height of the Cold War then in the 1960s, between 60 and 63, and McNamara said that when things escalate like this, the most important thing is to see yourself through your enemy's eyes. So how is your opponent viewing you? And that sounds like what we're hearing now from from the Canadian military, that uh, Defence Staff General Wayne Eyre, when he's when he's saying this, he's he's being upfront about where the vulnerabilities are within our defence framework in Canada, and and this is something I think many of the Five Eyes nations, not just Canada, are being very upfront about where weaknesses are and where things need to get better quickly. It's not. Uh, trying to sugarcoat it in any way and say that uh, we're ready for anything that gets thrown at us. The, the simple answer is we are not. And in there, I, I mean, what uh, what what we need to think about here is the imagination of what the military is going to have to do in the future to protect uh, the nation, to protect Canadians both at home and abroad. And that may be very different than some of the traditional 
images and, and stories around what militaries in the past have done or what the Canadian military has done in the past for, for this country. If we think back to Second World War and First World War, this is not the kind of combat and kind of geopolitics that we're engaging in today. The, the big threats, uh, I think that he correctly identified, are going to be uh, not on a battlefield at all. They are going to come through uh, cyber uh, cyber attacks, cyber security, and we've we've had discussions about this about just how vulnerable many Canadian institutions are to foreign cyber attacks. And the second way uh, that we're seeing quite actively already by both China and Russia is disruption to to Canadian democracies, uh, to, or to Canadian to, to Canadian democracy and democracy around the world. That this mm-hmm. is a huge target for. Uh, intelligence services both in Moscow and Beijing, and they've been getting away with quite quite a carnival of disruption, uh, not just in cases in North America, but uh, throughout Africa and South America too. And uh, I think he's right on the mark with saying that this is something that we've got to be better prepared for. Now, how the military prepares for that in their recruitment, that remains to be seen. And, and I think we could have a discussion about what, what could be some good ideas along those lines. Well, yeah, I mean, we've seen, you know, television ads in the past, you know, hey, you know, see the world, et cetera, like that. But I mean, this is a more dangerous world right now. Uh, and they're looking for people that, are, that I guess are going to have that sort of commitment to it. And there's, as the general mentioned yesterday, uh, this is a, a double-edged sword here. Not only are we not getting enough recruits in the military, uh, veterans are leaving uh, at the other end of the spe- and And, you know, so the numbers are dwindling. And you add that, as you just mentioned, uh, that, you know, the Five Eyes, for instance, and, and some of our other NATO partners have been uh, nudging us toward the idea that we've got to make a stronger commitment here. Uh, but no, not just financially, but as you say, with personnel, with the Five Eyes. We have, I don't want to use the phrase carry our weight, uh, but, but, but there's got to be a stronger Canadian commitment here. Well, you can only do that if you have the personnel to do it. Exactly. And it's... It's a question of whether or not those who are in uniform, who have been through uh, officer corps training, who have been through basic, who are maybe in the reserves, what's their role? What's their what's their training and their skill set to uh, address some of these challenges going forward? Now, one of the things with a military like Canada's, which is modest compared to uh, some of the others in, in, in NATO and in the Five Eyes, uh, is there's always been a strong role for support, uh, especially in the last 30 years since basically the peacekeeping era going forward. And that's sort of been the strength to sort of help out the, the bigger organization or the partners in that way. Now, because what we're getting into now is a war of information and a war of disruption, where the assets are going to be most valuable for Canada is having the ability to gather and collect intelligence in a broad sense. It's what militaries refer to as all source intelligence. Uh, you know, there, there's, there's intelligence that comes from satellites and images and, and maps, and radio signals, all of this. But all source intelligence is very important. And we've seen how other countries have relied on that to their benefit in, in the past. And I think about to our, to our friends in New Zealand who, re, who relied on all source intelligence at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic when most of the world was saying, oh no, it's just a little flu, it's contained into to China. Not their information on the ground there. They were saying, we gotta get ready for, you know, essentially viral Armageddon. And they did, and New Zealand had a plan in place and they, they relied on that intelligence beyond just the medical stuff. Now that's, important because if uh, Canadian military is able to expand 
their partnerships with civilians and universities uh, and people who are actively doing research on these issues from humanitarian crisis to energy issues to uh, economics to even uh, even translation and linguistic specialists and to make sure that there's a relationship there where uh, professionals and researchers are able to provide good intelligence clean intelligence to the Canadian military, that could be a strength. And, and I speak to that with my own experience, Bill, when in, in 2016, we were doing a project on, uh, on on North Korea, getting access to resources through shipping. And we essentially started to track uh, vessels coming in and out of the country. And sure enough, within a couple months, uh, I was invited to a meeting with uh, US and Canadian military personnel to, to share findings. And, and that triggered a policy response. So one of the things I've, I've, I know is that when you're in the uniform, you're given your docket, you're given your orders. But to rely on others who are doing uh, good intel and good research on their own accord, or at least independently, you're able to be a bit more creative in how you gather that data. And uh, we're seeing that come forward right now with the war in Ukraine about how uh, it's, it's civilians who are providing uh, a lot of, of details and information that then militaries can use. And that's what uh, I would think we would, we would see a greater emphasis to rely on going forward. Let me circle back to your, uh, your quote from Robert McNamara just a couple of seconds ago because I was intrigued by that. Uh, if we tried to look at ourselves through the eyes of, of the Russians and the Chinese in situations like that, are we perceived as the weak link when you look at the five eyes and, and some of the NATO members here that are that are stepping up and doing this sort of thing? I mean, because there's a let's face it, the Chinese and the Russians to a certain extent, but even more the Chinese have a pretty strong foothold here. Uh, you mentioned oh, yeah. about university campuses. I mean, you know, they fund a lot of research and development programs, and that that creates a link. Uh, between the Chinese government and those universities. And, uh, you know, they, those universities are going to be reticent to give that money up. And you don't know what kind of stuff's going out the door, you know, a.k.a., you know, the, the, the two scientists that left the Winnipeg plant with a couple of suitcases full of stuff and went back to China. So mm -hmm. did, did they look at us as an easy mark that, or did we have to step up our game in that regard? I think so. And and I think you're right on that. Every university in this country has uh, invested millions uh, annually into what they call internationalization. And for the past 15 years, that internationalization has been targeted solely at mainland China. Uh, I mean, there's been some other other projects that get picked up, but every university coast to coast has had this sort of collective emphasis to try to gain market into to mainland China through research or through actual education opportunities. And you are right on the mark there, Bill. The The case in Winnipeg is one. The the, the shot down vaccine partnership at, at uh, Dalhousie University with uh, a lab yeah. in China is another example of that. So, you know, we, we see there's a vulnerability too. And in, in China, we see that there has been using sort of those soft diplomacy routes to try to gain influence in education and technology has clearly happened here. Now, let's look at it through Russia. Now, Russia has got uh, a, quite a force for Arctic Arctic control and, and sovereignty. I mean, they, they roll nuclear ships, uh, nuclear-powered vessels up to the North Pole to, to film vodka commercials. Uh, meanwhile, some of our, our, our ships struggle to make it to the North Pole, depending what time of year it is. So, 
we see the calamity of Russian military in Ukraine right now, but their navy is still a, a significant force, uh, especially with Arctic sovereignty and control. And that's, I think, another vulnerability with Canada is that we are a tremendously large uh, geographical space and, and geopolitics and is now coming more back into the, to the realm more and more uh, every day. And if there's ways for Russia to use the Arctic in order to gain intelligence and to gain access to resources through any sort of navigation, that will be a pinch point. That's where things will start to heat up. And uh, are we prepared to uh, physically defend in that way? Maybe not. And then the other thing that, uh, again, through the eyes of Moscow, is that they're very direct in their propaganda that they send out through uh, through the media outlets about just how much of a farce Western democracies are and, and how they can be easily tilted and disrupted. Uh, we're, we're seeing that uh, play out in numerous countries, in even in Africa right now, where Russian media tries to uh, use what they actually call uh, active measures of influence on even small-scale elections, just to prove that they can. So, if we have elections coming up in this country uh, at any point, you know that's that's another vulnerability uh, that that comes into it. So, from the point of those two countries, uh, we're we are seen as a big target to be pushed around. And finally, just to circle back to the last point, China's history of pushing its weight around has always been sort of to position itself against the United States, but never really aggravate the United States. Instead, mm -hmm. it intimidates allies, allies like Australia, allies like Canada. So we're sitting in a spot where we definitely can't be complacent. We have to be very serious about these threats that, uh, that General Staff Sergeant uh, made, uh, made earlier, for sure. Well, and certainly I hope that these uh, don't fall on deaf ears with these parliamentary committees because it, it comes to commitment, I guess. And I, I know that uh, some people are going to refer to the, the, the NORAD agreement that was uh, Minister Anand and others uh, talked about a couple of months ago. And I guess that's a good first step, but there's a lot more work to do on this. Professor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for this. Really appreciate the time today. Anytime, Bill. Thanks so much for calling. You betcha. Dr. Robert Hewish, uh, Associate Professor at Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Always keeping an eye on what's going on with uh, the popularity of the uh, current government, of course. Uh, and I went to the new conservative leader, Pierre Parley, have been in uh, that job now for a couple of weeks. Uh, the uh, latest results from Nanos uh, research uh, are rather intriguing and I think tell a story. Uh, essentially, uh, the Conservatives, if an election were held today, would probably win more seats than the Liberals, according to the latest numbers. Joining us to talk about this is Nick Nanos, the founder and president of Nanos Research. Uh, Nick, great to have you back in the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Great to join you and all your listeners. Let me ask you about, I mean, when there's a new leader, invariably, there's always a honeymoon period. Uh, and certainly that's, I suppose, the case to a certain extent with Pierre Polyev. Uh, and, and in isolation, Nick, that probably makes a lot of sense. But this is really part of a trend that seems to have been developing for the last little while. Yeah, well, but sometimes it's like a reverse honeymoon, because as soon as someone is selected as the leader, the opposition parties start hammering that person. Right. That happened. Remember when Justin Trudeau was first selected leader, the, oh, yeah. the Stephen Harper conservatives went hard at him. Uh, Michael Ignatyev. You know, when he was uh, selected leader of the Liberal Party, the Conservatives went after them. And, you know, the one interesting thing about this go is, I don't know about you, but I don't really see big attacks against uh, Pierre Poiliev that, in the same way that we've seen in others. And maybe it's because 
I think uh, I think the liberals believe that he's defined himself in a way that they believe is uh, is good, that they don't need to do anything to, to add anything to the pictures. But as a result, you know, Pierre Poilly has been able to get his message out. And, you know, we see that uh, in the in the numbers. So. So, yeah. And the conservatives have been doing well. They were doing they were doing better than usual, even during the campaign. So maybe this is just frosting on the cake if you're a part of the blue team. Well, it's interesting you said that because, I mean, some of the sources I've talked to from up in Ottawa the last little while that are covering Parliament Hill on a regular basis uh, suggest that a lot of MPs, uh, you know, people in the caucus, are pretty upset with the boss and simply saying, where are the attacks on this guy? I mean, is it arrogance? You'd think, oh, don't worry, he's never going to be a challenger to us. He is. Uh, and they're expecting some sort of a, a program, some sort of a, a pushback on this. And it hasn't really happened so far. Well, maybe it's because uh, they know that there isn't going to be an election. Like, let's face it, if the if the Liberals wanted to trigger the election, and some people have been saying that, uh, they would have gone hard and fast against Poiliev because that would have been the first round in a campaign of an election they would have tried to have engineered. I think the fact that they're not attacking him confirms that at this point in time, there's very little appetite to uh, to to have an election, you know, when we look at the nanos polling numbers right now, at least the Conservatives are about four points up ahead of the the Liberals. The other interesting thing, uh, the New Democrats are like in the low twenties, which is actually quite good for the NDP. And what it seems is for the Conservatives is that you know the attacks from Pierre Poiliev ha- has had a number of impacts. One of those impacts has been to drive some Liberal supporters to the New Democrats and. Bill, if you remember in the, I don't even want to say the olden days because I don't want to date ourselves, but, you know, in the <laughs> olden days, the Conservatives wanted the NDP to do well because when Jack Layton did well and Tom Mulcair did well, that was very good news for the Harper Conservatives who saw the progressive vote split. And that's what we're seeing right now in the numbers. Well, and you're right, the history there. I mean, we all remember, of course, Jack Layton's time uh, as opposition leader, and that was, of course, because of a lot of success in Quebec, and it was short-lived. Yep. It was a, it was a one-term thing. Uh, but but Justin Trudeau's moved the Liberal Party so far to the left right now. Uh, the bleeding support back to the NDP is, is significant, really, when you look at the numbers here. Yeah, and, you know, the thing is, is uh, I would hazard to say that back in 2015, if anybody had said a number of things like that the the Trudeau Liberal government would be as progressive uh, as we've seen in the last number of years, uh, I think people would have said, like, come on, the Liberals don't really go that far. And, you know, I think that's that's been one of the difficulties. And, you know, the other thing is, is the Liberal strategy has changed because I think back in 2015, it was <clears throat> the big te- tent, very welcoming, lots of, you know, welcome everybody, you know, try to get as many voters as possible. I think fast forward to 2022, the liberals are like, you know, these are the people that support us. These other people will never, ever support us. So they're like they're doing the same kind of narrow casting to just part of the electorate that the conservatives usually have to do. So, you know, the result has been the center has been kind of vacated by both of the two major parties where, you know, if you were uh, I'll call it a blue liberal or a progressive conservative you feel like you don't have a home right now. 
Well, and you're right. There's people on both sides of that right now. Uh, you know, we, when we saw Paulius victory a couple of weeks ago, you know, there's a lot of questions. Is is this the death knell for the progressive conservatives? I mean, I know they changed the name when Stephen Harper alliance, you know, with uh, Peter McKay. But the Brian Mulroney conservatives, you know, those sorts of people, they say, well, that, that's and same thing on the other side. You know, where are the John Manleys and the Paul Martins in the Liberal Party? They don't seem to exist anymore. And there's, a, a, I guess, a very large segment, as you mentioned, Nick, right in the middle that are pretty disenchanted right now. And I'm not sure if they know which way they want to go. Yeah, I think I, maybe maybe to sum up how some people might feel when they're voting is, who do I dislike least? Yeah. Like, they dislike both, but I dislike this option just a little less than I dislike the other option. But it's a sad state of affairs if that's what uh, a significant proportion of the citizenry are thinking about when they go to cast a ballot on the federal scene. What happens to those people? I mean, I know there was the center-right conservatives and, you know, some people from the, the kind of wing up, but I, I don't think there's any chance of them forming a party. It doesn't seem like it anyway. Uh, but somebody's got a, a, a try, I would think, Nick, to try to, you know, reach out to those people and say, no, we, we will be there for you. Uh, here, you know, here's what we can do for you. But you're right. Neither side seems to want to, to, to go there. They seem firmly entrenched at, at polar opposites of the political spectrum right now. Well, the conservatives have made a decision. And I think we should expect, considering it was a big win for Pierre Poiliev, let's face it, you know, I think for Jean Charest only to get 12% of the votes cast and, I don't think there is a more higher profile, experienced progressive conservative out there than Jean Charest. Uh, for him only to get 12% of the vote basically says that in this current configuration of the Conservative Party, uh, it's uh, it's clearly more anti-establishment um, and, uh, and and conservative. And so, but so I say Pierre Poiliev is going to be the choice for the foreseeable future, because the conservatives just made that. I think the other big question is, you know, Justin Trudeau has been leader of the liberal party for a while. He's been prime minister for, for like seven years. Uh, I know he says that he's going to stay for the 2025 election. He has to say that because if not, he becomes a lame duck leader. Uh, but what happens to the liberal party if he decides to step down? And to your point, Bill, this is where the big question is. I think that'll be one of the battle lines you know, do the liberals decide to opt for a choice that is a continuation of the Trudeau leg legacy? Or do they want to opt for someone that might be uh, a little more focused on the economy and those other kind of uh, meat and potatoes type issues? And, and those are important issues. Obviously, the economy, cost of living, inflation, things of this nature. The, the, the downfall, as you've been reporting, Nick, for the last three or four elections, I guess now, for the conservatives, uh, is they don't seem to, to have much of a foothold in some of the larger urban areas, especially Toronto yeah. and in, in, in Ontario. Uh, your numbers from this particular poll indicate that, that seems to be changing. The conservatives are starting to get some, some support there. Especially in, in suburban areas. And, you know, that's, uh, you know, we do uh, we do seat modeling and projections on all of the uh, all of the 338 federal ridings. And, you know, an election isn't being held today. But if an election were held today, about uh, 57 seats out of the 338 are, uh, are up for grabs. And we have the conservatives actually just nudging out with just a couple more seats than the liberals. Uh, and, you know, to put this into context, it might not sound like a lot, but, you know, the Liberals won the last election in terms of the number of seats by, by you know, they were ahead of the Conservatives, I think, by more than 30 seats. So for the Conservatives to be a couple up is actually a big, big change. But, you know, the, 
the writings that we're seeing that are now in play uh, include writings in the Oakville, Hamilton area, Oshawa, which is another bellwether riding. These are the writings in, in kind of not in downtown Toronto, but in the broader suburban belt where the conservatives are, are much more uh, are much more competitive. I think part of this has to do with a bit of a, a halo effect from the Ontario provincial campaign where Doug Ford and the, the Ontario progressive conservatives did very well. Right. They won. Uh, they won a big majority. Uh, they did well in the popular vote, even though the vote turnout was 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 below. It was lower than uh, usual. But so there's a bit of a there's a, there's a bit of a shakeup. And I think in Ontario and some of these ridings, you know, if I could sum it up, you know, for a lot of those voters, they generally like the direction of the liberals and what they stand for. But it's just too much. And people in Ontario want to hear about issues like the price of gas, the price of housing. All right. Taxes, all those types of things. Where are jobs going to come from? That's really want, what they want to hear from the liberals um, and uh, and to have less of a focus on some of those other issues that have been priorities for the liberals in the last seven years. And but the the mindset always used to be, well, yeah, but those are the things that matter. You know, you go to Toronto, you go to Oakville and and they want to talk about the environment. They want to talk about, you know, alternative fuels and things of this nature. And, and I, I suppose that's true. But uh, you're right. Doug Ford kind of took a lot of the thunder, didn't he, Nick, with the, the provincial campaign, you know, Absolutely. the commitment to EVs, uh, bringing, you know, I never thought I'd see you know, the, the uniform president standing side by side with a, a conservative premier. But that's what was happening uh, and because he he develop programs like that and, we, and you're right we saw that well they they took a seat in hamilton east stony creek or neil lumsden uh, won that seat uh, that had been ndp for the longest time and livable before that they won seats in brampton that they didn't think they were going to win uh, so there seems to be a trend here and i guess there, there can be i guess a, 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 a kind of a bleeding into that saying hey maybe this isn't so bad after all yeah I, I, and, but know, i guess that you, go ahead no i was going to say I, I think i think you're 100 on point you know the, the the fact of the matter is is that uh, in the past, uh, many of these unions were like gimmies for either the New Democrats or the Liberals in some cases. But the thing is, is that you know when the when the Conservatives start focusing on jobs and uh, and issues like that, that that has a significant appeal among uh, among 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 union members, because you know the thing is, is that union members are taxpayers. Right. They've got bills to pay like everybody else. They're figuring out what kind what the job market is like. And uh, and, you know, they're very practical in how they vote. And, you know, Doug Ford is a good example on how he's been able to appeal to uh, I'll call it working Ontarians, uh, whether they be unionized or not. And that's a bit of a game changer. And I, and I think I think that's probably what Pierre Poiliev is hoping to do with his focus on the cost of bread, the cost of food, uh, the rising cost of housing. And him saying he understands that people are struggling to pay the bills and that we need a government focused on those issues. All right, let's talk about the, the two main leaders here. Uh, let's, oh, we'll start with, with Pierre Polyev. Uh, if Doug Ford had so much success in Ontario, and Ontario is key for any federal party that wants to, to form government, uh, I know the people out West may not like that, but Ontario and Quebec really are the tail that wags the dog in a lot of these elections. Yep. Uh, does Polyev look at this and say, maybe maybe I need to move a little bit more to the middle? I mean, because Doug Ford was perceived, as you remember, Nick, uh, when he first got elected as, as a hard right guy. And, oh, you know, he's he's going to be terrible. He's, he's you know, 10 times worse than Mike Harris was here. Uh, but he's moved. He's almost bordering on a populist uh, premier right now with some of the policies that he's moved to and a softer approach to this. Does Polly have learned from that or does he just say, no, I am what I am? 
I think I think Polyev should learn from it, but I'm not sure it's an issue of, of moving to the center. I think it's an issue of talking about what most voters are worried about, which is kind of like paying the bills and not, you know, and if I could use an example, uh, not spending as much time talking about freedom and whether we live in a democracy or not, not talking about Bitcoin and all that other stuff, because, you know, here, here's a number to, to chew on. You know, I think a, there's a, not I think I know we've done a survey and we asked people about how worried or not worried that they might be about paying the rent or paying the mortgage in the next 30 days. And there's about 8.7 million Canadians who are worried about paying the rent. They don't, they don't want to hear about Bitcoin and they don't want to hear about whether democracy is at risk and whether we need more freedoms in Canada, because from their perspective, they're just thinking about whether they can pay the rent or pay the mortgage in the next 30 days. So, you know, I think for Poiliev, I don't think it's really about moving to the center. I think it's about just not spending any time or bandwidth on some of those secondary issues that do not touch the day-to-day -day lives of Canadians. Because I'll tell you one thing, Bill, most Canadians are not in investing in Bitcoin. Some will, younger people, if they if more likely than older. But mm -hmm. if you can't pay the rent, what do you want to hear from a politician? What are you doing so that I can have a better paying job? You know, what you know, what's the job market going to look like? How can we pay our bills? That's what you want to hear about. You don't want to hear about those other things. So I say for Poiliev, it's focus on things that Canadians care about and that are important and just don't talk about some of those other issues that probably helped you win the leadership. Uh, as for the uh, prime minister, uh, I don't expect Justin Trudeau is going to say, oh, my God, the numbers are down. I better quit before I get my butt kicked in the next election. I, I don't think he's got that mindset. But as you mentioned, uh, every politician, his, his father, Stephen Harper, go down the list. Everybody has a best before date. Yep. And and the trend right now you know, seems to indicate that after about 10 years, or almost 10 years, by the time this uh, next election rolls around, probably, uh, they get a little tired of the government, no matter who they are right now. As, as, as one liberal insider told me the other day, Nick, maybe it's time for uh, Justin to follow his dad's lead and take a walk in the snow this winter. Uh, do, you, do you see that happening? And, and I know, he, as you mentioned, he says he's not going to leave, but they all say that until they leave. Yeah, um, I, I think it's uh, I think it's definitely possible, except under one circumstance. So think of it this way for the and you know for not just justin trudeau but for the liberals to hold on to power they're gonna the next election is going to be very difficult just because they've been in power for such a long time one of the, the there's two things that they have to do um they actually have to give a reason to stay in power because it's not enough just to say you know let's keep us in because you want to keep those other folks out uh there needs to be uh there needs to be a reason. And then they have to explain what they're going to do for Canadians. You know, it's very clear from Pierre Poilievre the direction that he wants to take the country and that it's fundamentally different from the Liberals. Uh, so for the Liberals to run the same type of campaign that they ran in the past, whether Justin Trudeau is a leader or not, is probably the sh the surefire way for them to lose uh, the next federal election. So um, so I think I think the next election for the Liberals will be difficult regardless of, of who the leader is but if they want to have any kind of fighting chance, they have to explain why they deserve another mandate and also explain what they haven't accomplished in the last number seven years or nine years, whenever the election might be happening, what they haven't accomplished uh, to say, yeah, they still have more stuff to do. And they haven't done either of those things yet. 
No, it's uh, and, and as you say, maybe because they think they can control the timing on this, but nonetheless, uh, people's opinions are forming now, and uh, they, they can't just uh, turn it on. You know, uh, going into the last couple of months of a, a mandate. Uh, Nick, it's always great to have your insight into this uh, with uh, Nanos and uh, the great research you guys do. Thanks so much for this. Uh, happy Thanks. Thanksgiving, and I uh, hope we'll talk again down the road. You bet. Bye bye. Take care. Nick Nanos, founder and president of Nanos Research. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.